All right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is where we're going to be today. And uh, while you turn there, I uh, want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest in the room. Uh, welcome. We're so glad that you joined us. And um, if you are a guest, I would encourage you, if there's one of these in a seat around you, um, we would love to know that you came for the first time. If you're here and you joined us in worship, um, I can tell you how this is going to end. Um, you're going to turn this in if you so choose, and uh, I'm going to send you an email and invite you to coffee, and that's the end of it. So uh, we're not going to hassle you or heckle you. I would love to get to know you and hear your story and how the Lord brought you to our church and all those kind of things. So if you're new, we'd love for you to do that and take advantage of that. And uh, we'd love to know how we as a church family can uh, serve you and potentially welcome you here and uh, get you plugged in and all those kind of things. Um, a couple things before we read our text and dive in. Um, as Brent said, uh, mark your calendar for October the 30th. It's the last Sunday of this month. Uh, we are in October, and it feels cooler outside, which is great. Fall's here. Uh, how many of you watch Hocus Pocus 2 already? Uh, none? Okay. One. Okay, there we go. One brave soul. Um, yeah, fall's here. Uh, October 30th is going to be a big day for our church. Um, we did a family service last week, and it was great. We had kids in the room, uh, first grade and up with parents. We did one big service at 10 o'clock, and we had extra announcements and all those things, so it went a little longer. Um, we're going to do a family service again on October the 30th at 10 a.m., and we're not going to have any special announcements or any extra stuff. It's just going to be a normal service. We're actually going to do family dedication um, in our service as well. So if you have young children that you would like to um, be a part of the family dedication, we'd love to talk to you about that. But um, that's 10 a.m. on October 30th, and then we want to invite you back that night because we're going to do uh, dinner as a church family and a big trunk retreat out back for the kids and all those kind of things. So we'll give you more details about that, but what an awesome opportunity for us to rally around the children and uh, have some fun uh, trick-or-treating out back and uh, have a meal together and all those things. So um, for those of you that are competitive in our body, <clears throat> Meg's family, um, you can. Uh, we're gonna have contests and let you dress up and all the things, give out some awards and some stuff like that. So uh, we'd love for you to participate and uh, give the kids an awesome opportunity to trick or treat. Um, you know that stuff's getting crazier and crazier um, over the years. So it'll be a safe place for kids to have a lot of fun and for us to be together as a church family. So um, lastly. Um, back in March, and this is just a quick update, March of 2020, we were supposed to take some teenagers on a mission trip to Guatemala, and uh, literally the world shut down that Saturday, and uh, we decided to postpone the trip the Thursday before that, a couple days before, and we were glad we did because, you know, the world, COVID happened, everything kind of shut down, countries all over the globe were closing and uh, we found out if we flew there that Saturday, they would have turned us right around and we would have flown home and all of that fundraising and things would have gone to just a quick round trip in one day to Guatemala and back. So uh, we were glad that the Lord kind of led us to not take that trip and um, students had raised money and all of those things and we've been waiting for the right, you know, things to open up and the precautionary things to lower and all that stuff. So we're where we felt comfortable taking teenagers back and, uh, we found that time. In fact, their flight vouchers would expire by the end of this calendar year. Um, so the Lord opened the door, and we're going to take a trip uh, over fall break. So we're going to take a couple of used-to-be students. It's weird because it was two and a half years ago or so, so now they're not teenagers anymore. Some of them are like col in college, and they're high school graduates and all the things. So it's a unique trip. We've got some former students coming back. We're going to go on a trip. Um, we've got some 
children in our body and some of our teenagers, but it's kind of a, just a mixed bag of um, people that the Lord has appointed to this trip, and we feel like he's sovereign over it, and he's, there's a reason we're going and all of those things. So if you think about us while you're on your fall break, pray for us. Uh, we would love your prayers, and uh, if you want to donate to that trip, not necessarily even financially, but uh, we have a Amazon wish list of things um, that we would love for you to potentially, um, you know, prime ship them in the next couple of days and get it to, to us before we leave on Saturday. Um, you can talk to Marley about all those things. We'd love to get you involved in that. But that's just if you want to join us. Um, you've already been super generous and helped in lots of ways with that trip. So thank you for that. Um, so I think that's everything. Let's dive into the text. Um, we're going to talk about the parable of the talents this morning. And uh, we've been walking through different parables for the past six weeks or so. And uh, I want us to, to really kind of level the playing field before we dive into this parable, because the parable of the talents is probably one of the most popular of the parables, but I would also argue probably one of the most misunderstood. And uh, we need to level set when we talked about week one of parables. Um, parables are um, stories that Jesus told to give us a truth about the kingdom. Um, so this parable of the talents isn't, you know, good business practice. It's not... Uh, you know, worldly wisdom. Jesus is telling us about the kingdom. He's not telling us how to conduct our business or manage our money or any of those things. Um, so I'm excited for us to dive into it and talk about it. And uh, I pray the Lord speaks to us during this time. So let's read it first and then uh, we'll jump in together. Um, so hopefully by now you're in Matthew 25. If you'll stand as we read God's word, uh, I'm going to read verses 14 through 30 and then uh, we'll pray and dive into the passage. Um, this is Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. It says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went and at once traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents uh, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here. You have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. And this is a heavy parable for us this morning. So let's pray and invite the Lord to teach us um, over these next couple minutes. Father, God, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it is um, eternally true. 
Um, that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but your word will stand forever. Um, God, that it does not need me to add anything to it. God, I pray that my extra words would just be to, to rightfully interpret and uphold uh, what you've written and what you've spoken. Um, God, you lead your people by your word. Um, your sheep know the sound of your voice, and they hear you and they follow you. Um, so God, lead us once again by what you've spoken. These are the very words of God. And Father, I pray that those who would have eyes to see and ears to hear would hear. And that, Father, you would um, use this time to make us more like Jesus. Um, conform us to the image of your Son. So God, um, enlighten our eyes. Um, make the simple wise. Rejoice our hearts. Um, do all that you do as we behold you in your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. And as you sit down, um, I had a something that I endured this week that reminded me of this parable and to kind of set the context for you. Um, it is that time of our year um, where my license plate expired and uh, I had to go in and um, renew my tags. And um, just from the laughs, uh, when I said this in the first service, there was like this audible, oh man, like I'm sorry to hear that kind of thing. Um, usually, you know, you can do that online. Um, our address changed this year, so we had to go in person and uh, show that we live where we live and all those kind of things and stand in the line. And um, so I had heard that things were rough, and this is not going to be, you know, bash the county clerk or anything like that. Um, but I'm just telling you how I think that this connects to the text that we're going to read and all those kind of things. But I'd heard that things were rough. In fact, we tried to go last week and they were closed for a week. So we knew that they would just be trying to do catch up and there would be, you know, double the amount of people, two weeks worth of people trying to go and renew their tags. And it was the end of the month. And, you know, my tags expired on the 30th. So it's like go on the 30th kind of thing, you know. So I'm there on Friday and uh, I knew they opened at nine. So I got there at eight o'clock and I was prepared, right? I had my hat on because the sun was going to come out and I didn't want to get sunburn on my bald head. I had my jacket because it's getting cold and it's fall weather and all those kind of things. And uh, I get there at eight o'clock, an hour before they open, and there's a couple hundred people in line already. And um, so I go hop in the line and um, get there at eight o'clock. I left at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, so hope you enjoyed your Friday. Um, I... Uh, I was there, and like I said, I'm not shaming the office or anything like that. They've got a lot of people they're servicing and stuff like that. But um, it reminded me of there's different kinds of waiting. Um, I had a lot of time to think about this, by the way. Um, think about our sermon. Think about the, this morning. Think about the message. Um, there are multiple different kinds of waiting, right? You can wait um, begrudgingly. You can wait with expectation. Um, you can wait actively. You can wait passively. Um, there are lots of, of waiting. In fact, when we see in Scripture, when it says to wait on the Lord, um, that's not a passive thing. Um, that's an active thing that we're to be doing. Um, so I can't say I waited joyfully. I can't say I waited, you know, with eagerness. Um, but I at least waited with purpose. And I uh, put a book in and listened to you know, six hours of a book about a theologian who died 500 years ago and all those kind of things. So uh, I find those things interesting. But um, I say all that to say, if we don't understand the context of this parable, we're gonna totally miss the meaning because it's widely misinterpreted. And I don't stand here arrogantly like I have the key to the interpretation that no one else has or anything like that. Um, but I do wanna show you the context and do my best to rightfully show you what Jesus is communicating in this parable. Because the best way to understand the text is to understand the context and understand where Jesus was when he said these things, what was going on, what did he say before this, what does he say after this? Because all of those things give us insight into what Jesus is trying to communicate. 
And I'm going to argue and show you in scripture that this is actually Jesus explaining how his followers should be waiting on his return. That it's not how you manage your money. Um, In fact, I was greeted this morning by our worship team saying, are you gonna use this passage to guilt us into using our talents to do more and to sing more and to do, no. Because it's not what Jesus is doing. This is not a guilt trip to use your talent and to get involved kind of thing. In fact, he's describing how his followers should be found waiting on him when he returns. And I wanna show it to you because I don't want you to just take my word for it. Um, The context of Matthew 25 actually starts in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are what is known um, in theological circles as the Olivet Discourse. Now, all that means is Olivet means on the Mount of Olives and discourse means teaching. So it's Jesus's teaching on the Mount of Olives. And it starts, if you wanna flip over a page to Matthew 24, flip back a page, it'll be on the screen. If not, I wanna read a couple of verses to you in Matthew chapter 24. But it starts with Jesus's disciples going to him privately and they start, they make a couple comments and then they ask a question. And for the next, the rest of 24 and all of 25, Jesus is answering their question. So I wanna read you the question and kind of set the scene for us. It says this in verse one of Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Uh, But he answered them, you see all those, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus, in verse three, it says he sits on the Mount of Olives. So I wanna paint the scene for you. Um, If you go to the Mount of Olives in Israel, and I've had a, incredible blessing to be able to to do this. From the Mount of Olives, you can look down over the valley and see the temple. So you can imagine Jesus and his disciples, they get on the Mount of Olives and they're just making a comment. Like, Jesus, look at the buildings. Like, it's a beautiful temple. And it sure was. Check it out. And what is Jesus's response? Not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, right? Sharp turn. Hey, Jesus, look at how beautiful the temple is. Yeah, there's not gonna be a stone left. That whole thing's coming down. And they're like, wait, what? So then they naturally start to ask a question. Verse three, he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, right? If the temple's gonna crumble, when's that gonna happen? What's the end gonna be? And so they say, and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will be led, um, they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Some of this will sound familiar. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And that's just the start. The rest of chapter 24 and chapter 25 are going to be Jesus answering this question of what's gonna happen to the temple and what's gonna happen when you return? What's it gonna look like? Give us some insight into your returning when you come back for your people. What are those days gonna be like? And Jesus starts to answer those questions and he starts talking about the abomination of desolation and tribulations and all these things that we're not gonna really have time to dive into today. But in the course of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives five different parables. Three of those happen in chapter 25. In fact, chapter 25 is essentially just three long parables. Um, In chapter 25, you've got the parable of the 10 virgins, you've got the parable of the talents, and then you get the parable of the sheep and the goats. And 
to give you kind of a summary of those, we're going to dive into the parable of the talents. But the parable of the ten virgins is essentially depend on the gospel. Don't wait. Right? So many of us think, I'll just get around to following Jesus and put my faith in him later. Um, He tells this parable about ten virgins and Five of them are prepared and they're eagerly waiting for the Lord to return. The others think, oh, I've got some time. I'll get oil later. And they hear that he's coming. They go to get their oil and they miss him. They waited too long. They did not know when he was coming. Scripture says he will show up like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the time. Jesus even says he doesn't know the day or the time. Only the Father knows when he will be sent to return for his bride. And the parable of the 10 virgins is depend on the gospel now. It's don't wait. Don't think you've got more time. Hear the word of the Lord that all of us are deserving of God's wrath because of our sin, that none of us are perfect. We are sinners by nature and by choice, that we regularly sin and fall short of the glory of God. And God in his grace has made a way for us to be with him and know him through Jesus' perfect righteous life and his sacrificial death in our place. And trust in him, don't wait. So it's depend on the gospel now. And we'll see the parable of the talents is declare the gospel now while you have time and then parable of the sheep and the goats um, will be to demonstrate the gospel to those whom Jesus loves, the broken, the needy, the poor, the naked, the widows, the orphans, all of those. So if you want a summary, that's kind of my summary. Um, But here's what I want you to see, that when it comes to our doing, when it comes to our sharing, when it comes to our investing the talents and those kind of things, when it comes to us demonstrating the gospel and loving those around us, none of those things save you. Not a single one of those things will save your soul. It won't. But what I'm gonna argue from this text is all of those are fruit that you have been saved. None of those things will save you, but they will all show that you have been saved, that they will show that your heart has truly been changed. In fact, the one in this parable who's condemned is gonna be condemned because they have nothing to show for what they say has happened in their heart. So let's look at it together. Um, Verse 14, it says this. For it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, notice how this sentence starts. For it will be like. It's not this kind of big announcement like the kingdom of heaven will be like. Um, It's almost like you're telling a story and you're giving another reason um, why, another comparison. So even if we didn't look at the context, this phrase should give us some indication like, wow, I should look at what he's been talking about. Because he just, he gives us, so it's gonna be like this. And then it's gonna be like this, and it's gonna be like this. So notice he just, he doesn't even say for the kingdom, he just says for it. So we gotta go, okay, what's the it? And we gotta look back to what he's talking about. He's talking about when he returns. This is what it's gonna be like. Here's what it's gonna be like. And he says, a man going on a journey. Now, if you remember in week one of parables, um, parables are these stories that give us a a glimpse or a truth about the kingdom. Uh, The word parable the para and balo, the two Greek kind of words that are sandwiched together, para just means alongside and balo means to throw. So it's, it's this truth about the kingdom that's thrown alongside an earthly story. So you get an earthly story about workers and servants. You get an earthly story about sowers and seeds. Jesus tells these earthly stories and he has thrown these truths about his kingdom along the side of these stories that we are to interpret. It's not an allegory. And this is one of those times where if we think parables are an allegory, we will get very confused. An allegory is a story where every single detail in the story has some kind of meaning in our world today, right? Simile is a comparison using like or as. The kingdom is gonna be like this. Jesus just said it will be like. 
So he's not saying that every little detail in this parable is gonna have some kind of correlation with us today. And this is where we can get confused because he says a man going on a journey. And if you read the rest of the parable, you know that Jesus is the man that um, he is describing and that he's showing us, um, that he's entrusted things to his servants. Um, Jesus has died and rose again. And the point is not for us to think that Jesus has gone on a journey right now. Um, if we get distracted by the journey and go, okay, what, what, Jesus did, what journey is Jesus on right now? Um, there is no parabolic way to describe a savior of the world who has gone to the right hand of the father and he is ruling and reigning and interceding for our sins, right? You can't put that in farmer's terms. So what Jesus just says is he's going on a journey, right? He was here physically and now he's gone. The point's not for us to get lost and go, where is he? What's he currently doing? He's told us where he is, right? He's at the right hand of the father and he's interceding on behalf of, our, of, of his children for our sins. I've paid for that, that's paid for, my blood's covered that, right? He's interceding for us as our high priest, as Hebrews says. So we know where he is. So don't get distracted by the journey. But the point is that our master is gone physically right now. Now he's given us his spirit. His spirit is in us as a seal and as a deposit that he will return and that he will bring all of this to fulfillment and all those things. But physically in human form, Jesus has gone. So he's gone and he calls his servants and he entrusts them or entrusts to them his property. So we have to ask, what is this talking about? What has he entrusted to us? Well, theologians will differ on this, um, but I can, you know, I think we can truthfully, in light of scripture, say a couple things. One, everything we have has been entrusted to us by God, right? That is true all across scripture, that Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. James 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above. John 1, that he's created everything. Colossians 1, that all things are by him and for him and through him and to him and he holds it all together, right? That every single thing we have has been entrusted to us by the Lord. And I think that's gonna be important as we interpret this parable. But I would also argue um, that if you look at scripture, that the gospel message is something that's been entrusted to us. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer, you've been entrusted with a message. And Paul says that, Multiple times throughout scripture, let me just show you a couple of them. This is 2 Corinthians chapter five. You're probably familiar with verse 17, where we're gonna start. But he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That when you were brought from darkness into light, when you were dead and now you've been made alive, when you've been made a new creation and the old you has been, the sinful you is gone, now, not constitutionally, we still sin, but the, the penalty of our sin has been gone and this new life in Christ that's been birthed in us is now here, that all of those things have happened, but also God has reconciled you to himself and part of following him is you've been given a ministry. Now you are the means by which God is going to reconcile the rest of the world to himself. And we need to hear that. 
you in your seat might be the means by which God reconciles your cousin, your uncle, your neighbor to himself. Now you can't save anybody, so don't put that burden on yourself where their eternal soul is in your hands. But you might be the means by which you share this message that you've been entrusted with as an ambassador to the king, his representative, explaining to your neighbor, to your cousin, to your crazy aunt, to whoever, about who he is and what he's done. And you might be the means by which God reconciles them to himself. That when you and I put our faith in Jesus, we didn't just become a part of his family and are adopted into his family, which we are. But we've also been made ambassadors representatives of him. And he's entrusted us with a message. Paul says this in other places, 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm just gonna roll through these really quick. Verse four, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 1 Timothy 1, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Last one, 1 Timothy 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That this gospel message is first something that we receive, but once we receive it, we've been entrusted with it. That we've been given a ministry. That when I truly realize that this great work to save myself has been done in my place, that I could never do anything to save myself, that I'm a wretch, that I'm a sinner, that I'm completely deserving of God's wrath. He would be totally just to punish me for my sin. And in his grace, he moves towards me and he loves me and he rescues me by his grace and he lives the life I could never live and he dies the death I deserve in my place. And there's nothing good in me that made him do that. It is everything good in him. That when I truly receive that message at the heart level, Man, something wells up in me that wants to, to communicate that to the world. Wait, that's available to everybody? Yeah, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every economic level, every ethnicity, doesn't matter, rich, poor, black, white, whoever. It's available to all people that you and I can be reconciled to the God of the universe. And then there's this sincere brokenness over those, especially those that we love, that have not received this reconciliation. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to earn it. They just have to receive it by faith. And if you read the book of Romans, Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul starts both of those chapters with, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my brothers who don't know the Lord. And he, he's using hyperbole, but he says, I would even rather be cast off so that they could be brought in. Like, I'm so heartbroken over these people that don't know Christ. And he prays, oh God, would you use me to be the beautiful feet that bring the good news? so that they might hear and put their faith in Jesus. But there's something in us that wells up and says, I wanna be a part of God reconciling the lost world to himself. Here in Carville, Germantown, Piperton, Bahia, you name it, and beyond, to the nations, to Guatemala. I wanna be a part of God reconciling the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And trust me, there is joy like no other being used by God. And like I said, we can't save anybody, but man, the means by which God wants to communicate the gospel to the world and save others is through his children, through us. So we've been entrusted with this message. Now, verse 15 says, to the one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, 
another distraction in this parable would be for us to get caught up in the five and the two and the one, right? For us to go, am I a five-talent person? Am I a two-talent person? Am I a one-talent? Am I half a talent, right? Am I one of those things? That's not the point. The point's not to look around horizontally and start to compare. And here's the deal. I don't know, but I know this. Fairness is not a biblical value. God is just, and in fact, I would venture to say, we say this a lot here, we do not want God to be fair with us. We do not want God to give us exactly what we deserve. That would not be good for us because I deserve his just and righteous judgment and punishment for my sin. I don't deserve anything else. That's grace. God gave me exactly what I did not deserve. It's a free gift of God. But God in his sovereign wisdom Give some five, give some two, give some one. And I'm not sovereign. I'm pleading the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than my ways and his thoughts higher than my thoughts. I don't know why God gives some people cancer and some people he doesn't. I don't know why some, God gives some people 80 years on this earth and some people eight. I don't. But I know that God is sovereign and he rules all things and nothing happens without his decree and he is good and he is loving and he can work all things. He does work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I know that God's sovereign and I can trust him and I can't explain why some get five, some get three, some get two, some get one. But here's what I do know is that if we get caught up in comparing these things, we will totally miss the point. Because I have no way of knowing. I could be a one-talent person. I have no way of knowing, right? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, can't, I don't know what you are or what I am. And boy, do we get caught up in comparison. And this is not the point of the text, so we're not gonna spend a lot of time on it. But you will lose in comparison every single time. Apply it to whatever area of life you want, but you lose in comparison 100% of the time. And here's why. You either get really arrogant because of the person that you're comparing yourself to and you think you're better, or you fall into despair because you don't measure up to the person that you're comparing yourself to. But those are the only two options. Comparison is a lose-lose game every single time. You either get really arrogant because you think you're better than those you're comparing yourselves to, or you get really sad and desperate because you don't measure up, but you lose every time. And the point is not for us to get caught up in who's got five, who's got two, who's got one. In fact, I would argue, if you look at the talents, um, what's beautiful about this parable is the one who had five doesn't have an upper hand on the one who got two or one because the master's not looking for a certain number of profit. What's he looking for? Faithfulness and stewardship. He just wants you to use what you've been given. So the one who started with five, I would even argue, probably has more of a burden, right? To, to whom much is given, much is required. I would be totally content with whatever the Lord's given you, right? Because that's what you're gonna give an account for. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But that's the heart of the passage, is be content with whatever the Lord's given you. It's not for us to decide or discern what we've been given or how much or how little. That I've got enough that the Lord's given me that I'm gonna give an account for. But don't get caught up in comparing and know and be encouraged by the fact that if you have five, if you have two, if you have one, none of them, no amount gives you an upper hand on any other people because the master is not looking for a profit number. He's looking for faithful stewardship. What did you do with what I gave you? So what's a talent? 
We need to dive into that real quick as well. A talent is not actually a currency. Um, a talent is a weight, where like in English, we have pounds and ounces. In the first century, they had talents and shekels. So we don't even know what a talent or what kind of talent the master gave. He just gave a significant weight of something. It could have been denarii, it could have been silver, it could have been gold. In the first century, um, the most common talent that was given was a talent of silver. And a talent of denarii was essentially um, 20 years wages, which is nuts. So if you think about a talent of silver, um, he was giving these people 60 years, 100 years wages. Like this is a significant amount that what God has given you is significant. So the point's not to look at the poor one talent guy and go, oh man, he didn't get much. No, he got like 20 years worth of wages. He's good. Imagine if you just received 20 years pay, right? I'm gonna be okay for a while. Like I have enough to work with. So that's not the point either for us to get caught up in the talents, but just know it was a significant amount of weight. And most likely it was silver, but the text doesn't say that. So, you know, put an asterisk by that. It was something, gold, silver, denarii, you name it. But obviously that's not the point of the text either or Jesus would have told us um, what he gave. So verse 16, he who had received the five talents went and traded with him and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So, and to trade, it was not like, hey, thank you for my five talents I'm going to go and put them in the stock market, right? There was no stock market. This person had to put those things to work. So when it says he went and took the talents and traded with them, the way you would do this was you'd have to go start a business or you'd have to go open a trade and you would use those resources to get your business going and you would work. You would like sweat and put effort into it to go and invest these five talents, these two talents to produce a return. So these people went and worked and this is where the music changes in verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And we need to hear this, that every single one of us will have to settle accounts with the Lord one day. We will. Every single person, believer, unbeliever, we will all face what Revelation describes as the great white throne judgment where we will all be before the Lord, the book of life will be opened, and those who know Christ will be welcomed in, and those who do not know Christ will get the depart from me, I never knew you. And we will all face Jesus one day, and the sheep will be separated from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. However, if you're a believer, there's also another judgment that we will incur. And it's what's called as the Bema Seat judgment in Scripture. Now, this is not a judgment that any of us fear. Why? Because it's not being judged for our sin. That's paid for. This is us facing Jesus and giving an account for what we have done with what he has entrusted us with. That we will face our master one day and we will settle accounts. And we will have to show for what he has given and entrusted to us. And I don't say that to guilt you. I don't say that to cause you to fear. Um, but I do think we need to heed this warning in the scripture. And we'll talk about what that means and how do we go about doing this and all those kind of things. But everybody's going to face the master one day and settle accounts. So, like I said, not for our sin, but for what we 
for what we have done with what he's entrusted us with. So look at how this plays out in verse 20. He who had received the five talents um, said, came forward bringing his five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. So, notice this. I don't wanna fly by this because we're focused on the one who buried it, but notice what happens. That when we settle accounts with the master, we will have to show for what he has entrusted to us and by God's grace, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he will entrust us with more. But at that time, when he comes, the working's over. So what does that mean? Well, scripture presents this idea, especially in Romans 8, 17, and other places, that if we've suffered with Christ and walked with Christ, that we will reign with Christ, that you and I, we will have responsibilities in the new heaven and the new earth. That when Jesus Christ returns, you and I, in this new heaven, new earth, no sin, no sadness, no sorrow, we will reign with him. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know all the details. We can sift through Revelation and try to figure it out together. But I do know that we will have responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth over angels and those kind of things. And that sounds crazy to me to think about, but we will be given responsibility to reign with Christ over this perfected earth for all eternity. And Jesus says, to those who were faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with what I gave you. Now I'm gonna give you more. I will entrust you with more. So we see this idea that you and I, if we are faithful with what he has entrusted with us, to us, that we will receive some kind of heavenly reward where we reign with Christ. And then he says this in verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours, right? Now notice this. Notice where he points the finger when he faces the master. It's not, you know, I struggled a little bit. It's not I tried. It was, I knew you were difficult, I knew you reap where you don't sow and gather where you don't scatter. And instead of obeying you, instead of risking what you've given me, I just buried it. And here, let me give you back what you gave me, right? And this phrase, reap where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter seed is essentially investor language. That Jesus Christ entrusts us with this message and he physically is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he will one day, just like any investor, if he invests in us, he will come and reap from us, not where he physically sowed, but where we sowed, that he's, this investor is looking for a return, that he's expecting a return from his servants. Now, we know theologically that any work we do for the kingdom is all God at work, that we can't change a heart, we can't soften a heart, we can't cause anyone to be saved, but it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, 
right? That we work out what he's working in and all of the, the goodness of the glory of sharing the gospel with others and them coming to repent and put their faith in Jesus, all of that is by God's grace, not our works. But as we just read in 1 Corinthians, the means by which that message goes out is through our work, through our sharing the gospel, through our going to all the nations and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded them. So you've got this man and he starts pointing the finger at the master, he says, I knew you were difficult, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I knew you expected a return, so I just decided to give you exactly what you gave me as your return. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now, here's what I want you to see. This response is religion at its finest. Religion at its finest. And for some of you, you might have the perception of Christianity. You might be in here this room this morning where God is just this taskmaster in heaven who just gave you this list of rules and he expects you to keep his rules and he's difficult and he's expecting you to follow the rules to a T and you might have responded this way, right? Sure, I'll intellectually agree that there's a God in heaven and that he's good and all those things, but I can't keep up the rules. It's the younger brother, I'm out, right? Prodigal son, I, I'm done. I can't do this. I'm gone. Some of you, that might be your story. There's people in our church who that was half of their story was I thought Christianity was just keeping up these rules. Here's the list of rules that God has entrusted to me and I just gotta follow these rules and what's the problem? We realize really quickly that we can't. We can't follow the rules. For you and I to be good enough and righteous enough for God to look down on us and, and we can atone for our own sins, it'll never happen. I uh, <clears throat> watched a documentary on Martin Luther recently and he described his relationship with the Roman Catholic Church um, that he was taking confession seriously. Like he was taking all of their rules and um, the um, giving, paying of alms and um, going to confession. He took it very seriously to the point where he was confessing multiple times a day. He's like, hey, if, if, if every time I sin, I need to confess in order to be forgiven, then he was going eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 times a day. And as soon as I get back from confession, I need to go again, right? Because somebody bothered me on the way back and I was hateful towards them or I thought these lustful thoughts, right? Imagine if you had to confess for every single sin and he kept going back. He was taking it at their word, taking the rules as they came. I'm gonna confess every sin. If my righteousness is up on my ability to, to even confess, then I've gotta keep going. And to the point where the Roman Catholic Church said, stop coming. Like, come back when you actually have something to confess. Almost like, hey, we don't take it that seriously. Like, just come and confess the big things that most people confess. And don't take it that seriously. And he described that first kind of couple years of his life in the Roman Catholic Church as torture, as I was trying to earn my own righteousness following these rules that they put in place and I could never do it. And some of you, that might be where you are today. That might be your view of God where he's given us this book of rules and you just gotta follow him and be a good enough person. And here's, you know how you're gonna respond eventually when you realize either you'll lie to yourself and think that you're good enough and you're keeping the rules or you'll be honest with yourself and realize I can never do this, I'm gone. If this is Christianity, then I don't want anything about it. I'm out. And you will intellectually agree to some of these ideas and you will take what the Lord has given you in his common grace. He's entrusted you with 
you know, the ability to work and breathe and eat and reason and all those things, and you'll just bury it. You'll do whatever you want until the master returns. This man clearly wasn't living for the master. You'll live for your name, your glory, your joy, your pleasure, all of those things. And you'll convince yourself that, hey, when the master comes, I'll just say the words that he told me to say, and he'll be pleased with me, right? Or, hey, I've, I've, I've got everybody fooled that I'm following all the rules. This is religion at its finest. God is difficult, so here's what I'm gonna do. Instead of risking it, instead of risking you know, failing, I'm just going to bury exactly what he's given me so that when he comes back, I'll just give him exactly what he's given me. And we see this with the one talent person. So here's the response. Verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. And the master, trying to be gracious, said, if you would have at least just put it in the bank and got interest on it, if you would at least just taken me at my word enough and truly known who I was and tried to obey me minimally, like I'm just looking for enough faith and belief for you to obey me minimally. Like if you would just do that, but you didn't even do that. You kept up this religious game. You kept up the to-do list and then you walked away from it. You buried what I gave you. You didn't do anything for the kingdom. You lived your life working a nine to five, making money, satisfying your own self, put shiny new toys in the garage and you did nothing with what I entrusted you with for the kingdom. Didn't share the gospel with your children. Didn't share the gospel with your neighbor, coworker. You sat on it. And what does he say? You wicked and slothful servant. You should have at least put it in the bank. And what he's saying here is there's no excuse for doing nothing. And I'm coming back, so don't think I'm, I'm guilting you for this. Here's the point. I'm gonna show it to you in just a second. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has more, to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here's what I want you to see. Is Jesus teaching in this parable that your entrance into heaven is based on what you produce in this life? No, he is not. What he is teaching is how you respond to what the master has given you shows whether or not you've been saved or not. Stewardship of what God has given us is not the root of salvation, but it is a fruit that we truly have been saved. Those who have truly been entrusted with the gospel message to the master, they will at once, wait, God, you would save me? Like you would choose to save me? One of my favorite things we do here is when we get to take communion as a body and I get to sit down here with my wife and our only prayer during that time is when we're thinking about the fact that Jesus broke his body for me and shed his blood for me is why me? Like why in the world would you do that for me? Do you know me? Like she knows me more than most of you know me. Like why would God do that for me? I'm undeserving. There's nothing about me that would ever warrant God to be that gracious and that kind to give the life of his own son for me. Like why would you do that for me? That's my only response. And when you truly realize that the work to be saved, that I could never do on my own, I could never save myself, I could never finish that work, 
that he's finished it for me, the only response is, man, I'll work for him. I'd be glad to work for him. I will joyfully do whatever he calls me to do to work for him. And it doesn't mean we all have to be in occupational ministry. No, it means I'll work for the glory of God. I'll parent my kids for the glory of God. I'll share the gospel with my children. I'll, I'll be a neighbor for the glory of God. Like all the little things. I will do those mission-minded. I will do those in a way that I want to, to show Christ to others. I wanna enjoy him and I want others to know him. Hey, if he will finish the work for me, then I'll take what he's given me and I'll work for him so I can know him more and enjoy him more. And what you produce in this life will not save you, but it is the fruit that you've been saved. Does that make sense? It's the relationship between faith and works. That Paul says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't be justified or declared righteous by your works. But James, like a hand fits in a glove, would go and say, yeah, but if your faith doesn't lead to working for the one who's finished the work for you, then it's not a real faith. You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he says, faith without works is dead. That those who have truly known the master, those who truly received the goodness and the grace from the master, they go to work. And it's not a burden, it's a joy, why? Because the greatest work for me to get to heaven has been finished. It's done. The impossible work that I could never do, that I could never be good enough for, he's done it. He said it's finished. I've done it with my perfect life and my criminal's death in your place. It's finished. And if he would do that for me, ask whatever you wish, Lord. I'll do it. I'll live for you to the best of my ability. And I'm not saying without sin or without trial or without my hard heart saying, go after what you want in the moment. But if we truly receive the goodness of the gospel, our only natural response is it works out in a life that works for our, our Savior who's done the work for us. It is. This new identity in Christ produces a new activity. Your identity determines your activity. Dancers dance, teachers teach. Those who have been reconciled to God reconcile others to God through the gospel message. Those who have been truly redeemed and saved and rescued be, they live their lives to be used by God to rescue others, to share the same gospel message. And Jesus says, and I think, give you some theological terms, what Jesus is referring to here is the visible church and the invisible church. Those are theological terms. And what I mean by that is the visible church is those that you can visibly see in this room, right? There's a lot of people visibly here in the church. The invisible church are those that you can see in this room who are truly saved, and we have no idea who that is. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. I could be going through the motions right now. The visible church is those who are in the room on a Sunday, and the invisible church are those who are truly repentant and put their faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, when I return and I give accounts, there's going to be those that truly know me and know that I'm not hard, that I'm not difficult, that I'm gracious, that I'm kind, that I'm merciful, that I'm slow to anger, that I'm abounding in love and kindness, and those will show up and they will produce a return. Why? Because of the work that I've done for them, they will gladly go out and work for me. But for those who are keeping up their religious game and they were in the visible church, they heard all the things, they heard all the sayings, they had some intellectual agreement to some facts, 
But the gospel truth never sunk down into their hearts. They were keeping up a religion that they could never maintain, keeping up a list of rules. All they will have to show is their religion. And he will say, depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant. You don't know the master. You never did. You thought you did. You made other people think you did, but you didn't. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13, verse 12. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He told this as he introduced the concept of parables, that those who are broken, those who know they need Jesus, what they have, they will be given more. But those who don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, those who don't see Jesus Christ as their Savior and their righteousness, even what they have will be taken away. Matthew 21, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus condemning the Pharisees, condemning Israel, and saying, hey, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna give it to those who are fruitful because they understand who I am and what I've done in their hearts. Matthew 7 is the same thing. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and we won't read the whole thing, but he says that they will be known by their fruits. Good trees can't produce bad fruit. Bad trees can't produce good fruit. That these scribes and Pharisees and you and I one day, we will either be validated by our fruits or we will be betrayed by our fruits. We will. Because those that have been rescued go and rescue. Those that have been redeemed go and redeem. Those that have been forgiven go and preach and sing of and proclaim his forgiveness to anyone who might come to the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness. It's not our works, it's not what we produce in this life that will save us, but man, are they fruit that we've truly been saved. And our master expects to find us working when he returns. Remember, this is in the context of, hey, what's it gonna be like when you return? And he says, hey, those who truly know me will be about my business. Those who don't will fear me because they think I'm difficult and they'll keep up a religion. But those who truly know me and see me for who I am, they will be working for me. Now, like I said, none of that is based on guilt. All of it is based on the work that he has done in our place. So the key this morning is not for you to leave here and go, man, I just feel like I gotta do more. I gotta produce more. Notice what he's measuring. He's not measuring how much you produce. He's measuring your faithfulness. Are you faithful to what he's given you? And you wanna know how to produce more? It's not to try harder. It's not, let me give you three tips to go produce more fruit. You know how John describes it in John 15? Is that you abide in Christ. That's how you produce fruit as you focus on the work that he's done for you, the more you and I think about the great work that God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves, the more I really think about that and believe that and cherish it and love it, the more I'll naturally go and work for him. The more I'll live my life to work for him. But when I get caught up in religion and think that I'm doing okay and I've got all this figured out, then I won't go work for him. I'll expect other people to keep up the religion as well. If I'm foolish enough to think that I've done enough to earn this thing, then I'll look around and start expecting everybody else to earn it too. But if I realize that there is a God in heaven who's done the work for me so I can know him and enjoy him and be with him forever, then man, I will go and work for him. So if you wanna know how to be more fruitful this morning, it's not, here's a couple more rules. It's love Christ. It's focus on the gospel. It's relish and treasure the work that he's done on your behalf. And the more you meditate on that, the more you abide in him, the more fruit you will produce. 
Apart from him, we cannot produce fruit. So the goal is to remember the work, to focus on the work, to dwell on the work every morning so that I will have a mind that's just more alert and intentional about using my day for the glory of Christ, to help others know him and see him and my words and my actions. That's why we dwell on and cherish the work and read our Bibles every morning, not to keep up the religion, but it's because I wanna remind myself of what he's done. And when I remember how much he's done for me, man, I'll go and do for him. I wanna be found working when my master returns. And I wanna say something to the believer in here. If you're in a season where you're not being fruitful right now, it doesn't mean you're not saved. We all go through seasons, right? There's a reason all of this is given in agricultural language where crops have seasons. There are dry seasons, there are winter seasons, but it doesn't make an excuse for where you are. When in whatever season you are, come to him. He will plow and till the hard soil of your heart and begin to produce fruit. So if you're a believer in here and you just feel like, man, I don't know if I've been fruitful in this season or I've been intentional to work based on the work that God's done for me, don't feel shame or guilt from us. Feel the encouragement that you have in Christ. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. Now jump back in. Remember his work for you and start working again. And so for some of you, maybe it starts with having family devotional time. For some of you, maybe it starts with just starting a conversation with your neighbor instead of seeing how quick we can close the garage, right? I have one now. I know the feeling. But for some of us, remember the work that he's done and jump back in and do the work for him. He does not need us to work for him, but man, is it a joy that he chooses to use us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, if there's anyone in here that has never, before they do any work for you, that has ever trusted in the work that you've done for them, God, I pray that today would be the day. If there's anyone in here that can just feel your spirit moving them um, to put their faith in Jesus, that they've kept up a religious game, that they've kept trying to be good enough and right enough and holy enough, and God, they've either convinced themselves that they are and have lied to themselves, or they deep down, if they're honest, they know they can't. God, there's grace in both areas. God, I pray that they would receive the grace that is only found in Christ. God, that the work to get to you, to atone for our own sins, was done by you. That you stepped out of heaven, you met the righteous requirements of your law, and you died for the sins of the world. And it's finished. So God, help us all to focus on the work that you've done. God, the more we think about it, the more we treasure it, the more we love it, the more we will be workers for you. God, I pray that we are a church that is found working when you return. God, our only key to doing that is to keep focusing on the work you've done in our place. So God, we love you. We worship you as the only one worthy. God, there was a work that separated us from, your, from you, from the Father forever. And there was only one who could ever complete that work. There's only one worthy of our worship. There's only one worthy... Um, of all of the awe and majesty and praise. And it's not any of us. It's not the name of a church. It's not the name of an individual. God, it's you. You're the only one worthy. So we worship you as the one who's finished the greatest work so that you and I could be, so that we could be workers for you. It's in Christ's name we pray.